All right. If you have a Bible, open with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And my goodness, Yuen and Kayla, that was amazing. Thank you guys so much for, uh, for sharing. Um, I almost feel like uh, we should just pray and go home at this point and like go hang out with each other. Uh, but man, they have been working on this uh, together for a long time, along with um, Andrea Canonez, one of our elders, and Alex Vela, another one of our deacons. Alex, I know you don't want to wave, but I'm going to make you wave. There we go. Uh, so those folks also have been a part of uh, helping craft that survey and then uh, administer it and then do all of the stuff where you like look at the numbers and, and then it like tells the story. I have no idea how they do that, by the way. I, like, I understand batting average. And that is about as sophisticated as I get when it comes to statistics. So anyway, they have been looking at this for a while and have just done an incredible job. Um, and then again, just great job this morning communicating uh, to our church. So thank you guys for that. And as they said, this is not just like a thing that we did in January and February and then we move on. We're going to continue to talk about this and bring this up, especially as we get into this conversation here in the book of Ephesians. This is a new conversation for us starting today. We're going to be going through this for the next several weeks as we continue to imagine and dream together about what the church can be here in this place. This is building on the time that we have spent in Matthew, in Acts, in our vision conversations, in the practices, all of these things kind of coming into this conversation as well. So we are going to read today just the first two verses in Ephesians chapter 1. Let me do that and then I will pray for our time in scripture. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me. God, we do pray now for our, our time in your word that you would speak to us. God, we come into uh, this moment this morning feeling all kinds of things, experiencing all kinds of things, some of them good, some of them challenging. We lift those up to you. We, we ask you to hold them for us, God, so that we can be fully present here, in tune with your spirit. Would you speak to us and challenge us this morning? Would you give us the courage to respond in whatever ways we need to respond? Amen. Um, well, hey, my name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. If we haven't had a chance to meet, hopefully we get a chance to meet after the gathering. I apologize for the mess in the parking lot. There was a lot more going on in the park today and in Davis than we anticipated. So um, thank you for uh, bearing with that and finding your way in here. Uh, this is one of those kind of weird Sundays where everything is happening all at one time, apparently. So anyway, all I have to say is thanks for making it, uh, thanks for making it here and being um, with us. All right, when I was about 23 years old, my grandmother was diagnosed with cancer. Picture of us here uh, dancing at my uncle's wedding. <laughs> this was in 1999. That's right. <clears throat> 1999, and yes, those tips are frosted. <laughs> also, I still have that tie, and uh, we'll wear it from time to time, so... I just noticed that right now. Anyway, that's my grandmother. She's a wonderful lady, and she, uh, she loved to write. She wrote in journals. She wrote notes to people. She had this beautiful 
uh, cursive handwriting. It's just amazing to look at. Like People don't know how to do this anymore. I certainly cannot write like that. But this beautiful cursive handwriting, she would write people notes and letters. And in her final weeks before she passed away, she wrote a handwritten letter to each one of her grandkids. All right? This letter that was, it wasn't a super long thing, but it was just this very, like, profound, this is who I see you being. I want you to know this about yourself before I am gone, right? Incredibly powerful. The power of the handwritten word, right? There's something about actually sitting down and putting pen to actual paper and writing down your thoughts and sharing them with someone else that is very powerful. Not to take anything away from email and text message, which are, you know, helpful tools, but there's something about handwritten notes and letters. We hang on to those things, right? They mean something to us. And especially something like that, right, from your grandma written at the end of her life, you don't, you don't lose those things. You hold on to those things. For the next several weeks, we're going to be considering this letter to the Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is actually a letter that was written by someone to a particular group of people. It's a relatively small book in the larger library, right? the larger 66 books of the Bible. But it is a letter that's just packed with big ideas, big theological truths, philosophical concepts. But it is also a letter... Of, of encouragement. And it is a letter that is filled with affirmation. It was written to a group of people, not just to individuals, but a community intended to remind them uh, communally of who they were and, and what they were up to in this, this new project, this adventure called the church. The author of this letter wanted them to know who they were and what kind of story they were in. Now, this community was in, again, the very early stages of life together as a church. They didn't have Amazon. There weren't conferences. There was no blueprint for, like, what's the next thing that we're supposed to do as a church? They had no idea what they were doing. And, and they were also living in circumstances that were very difficult, right? In a world and a culture that was not conducive to doing life together as a community of Jesus followers. Now, our circumstances today are very different, of course, but there's little doubt that our current, our, our, our cultural current moves in an opposite direction of the ways of Jesus. And so we're calling this conversation exiles, not because the Ephesians were a group of people who had been exiled, but more because that word kind of captures that sense, right, of, of dislocation. Of, of my heart and allegiances are, are, are here with this thing, but everything else is sort of pushing and fighting against that. That's how the Ephesian church felt. That's what they had to deal with living in the city of Ephesus and the culture that they were a part of. And I think it's very similar for us today. How do we live faithfully? How do we faithfully follow the ways of Jesus in a world, in a culture, in a moment where everything seems to be pushing in the opposite direction? So this letter to the Ephesians, a good guide for people in exile, and let's just get right into it by considering the author and the audience. Verse 1, again, says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, one of the hot debates and debates in the New Testament 
conversation and world is, did Paul actually write the letter to the Ephesians? Some people look at this and say, well, there's, there, it doesn't really sound like Paul. The, the type of language that's used in this letter is very elevated, very lofty, and, and Paul tends to be a little bit more of a meat and potatoes kind of writer. So the style is a little bit different. And then there's also this weird thing with some of the original manuscripts of the letter where the two, like the two part and then where it would say Ephesus, it's blank. There's even some question as to who this is really for and so it's probably not Paul. Now on the other hand, there, there are some scholars who, who sort of take the route of like, well, Paul names himself twice so it's got to be him, right? Chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, also he, he says, I, Paul, am writing this letter. And there's some other, I mean, that's the obvious one, but there's some other kind of circumstantial evidence that this might be Paul as well. For example, three times he refers to himself as a prisoner. And, and here at Discovery, we know, because we just spent a lot of time in the book of Acts, which tells us a whole bunch about Paul, right? A lot of his stories are in the book of Acts, and we saw that he does, in fact, end up in jail multiple times. And in particular, he spends a lot of time in jail towards the end of his life. And so some scholars, in putting that together, kind of look at the, that picture and they say, here's a guy who, uh, who knows he doesn't have a lot of time left, who's in jail, and, and so he just, like, he just goes for it in this letter. Right? His best ideas, his, his, you know, the best stuff, the, the big language, all of this into one letter. Not, not sure if he's going to get a chance to write another one. And then the argument goes, the two is left blank because Paul's thinking was, if this is my last letter, then maybe like, they could just drop another city in there, right? And we can just kind of keep using this in different contexts. Now, there's some logic to all of that. And it's just kind of interesting stuff. But again, we know, we know that Paul had an interesting and significant relationship with the church at Ephesus, having just spent some time here in the book of Acts. So in Acts chapter 19 and 20 is where most of that action takes place. We see there that Paul spent about three years in Ephesus. He was an itinerant uh, uh, preacher, missionary type guy. And there's at least three long journeys that he goes on where he's in different places. He's helping launch churches, encourage these young churches, and then just kind of moves on. But for whatever reason, he spent quite a bit of time in Ephesus. And, and so you can imagine, three years there, they bonded. They got close. And it wasn't just the time. There were also a lot of crazy things that happened when Paul was in Ephesus. And, and, and I think we all can understand when you go through crazy stuff together, it bonds you, right? Some of the things that, that, that happened while he was there, they confronted sorcerers. There, there were these big spiritual conflicts. Uh, this is also a, a site where the, the integration of Jewish believers and Gentile believers is happening. This is like one of the first kind of ground zero places for these two groups coming together in one church. And then on top of all of that, there was a big riot because the church was undermining the worship of Artemis. And it's interesting that we just talked about Laruta because at this point in the story, the church is called the Way. Right? So the way is disrupting the worship of Artemis. Now Artemis was the goddess of the hunt, the temple that was built 
to her for her worship in Ephesus, one of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world. It was a big deal. Artemis was a big deal everywhere, but was a really big deal in Ephesus. And what happened is people started to follow the way of Jesus. And as they started to follow the way of Jesus, they stopped packed on the city. Less people were going to church. Less people were buying all the trinkets and swag. There were people whose, whose sort of economic lives depended on uh, selling uh, Artemis figurines and whatnot. And so these guys, the, the, the merchants who are selling this, get upset and there's this huge riot. And it's this really big deal that happens in Ephesians. Paul's right in the middle of all of this. Now, quick side note, this is a really interesting part of the story because, to me, this illustrates one of the most uh, profound ways in which the church can bring cultural change. The church in Ephesus didn't get together, you know, sneak into a back room somewhere and go, you know, uh, the way of Artemis is really kind of inflicting or, or infringing on our, our, our right to worship. And so we should... We should protest this. We should fight this. We should boycott this. We should try to get some laws passed that make it harder for people to worship Artemis. Are you with me? No. What do they do? They just go about the good, faithful work of being the church, of sharing the good news of Jesus, of discipling people into this whole other way of life. And as they do this, as people are hearing about the good news of Jesus, giving their life to Jesus, having their lives transformed, it disrupts the city. Follow Jesus faithfully and you will become a disruptive person. This is so important, I think, because a lot of times as Christians, especially in this country, let's be honest here, we think that we have to, like, we have to start a fight. And what we see here from their example is you don't, have, you don't have to go looking for a fight. Follow Jesus faithfully and you will become a disruptive person. I think about a couple of things for us here. One of them is we're, we're a community that likes to uh, practice or try to practice the ways of Jesus. And one of our practices is the practice of Sabbath where you take some time a day off and, and you're not working, you're not productive, you're not studying, whatever those things might be. Think about that for a minute. This is a city and a campus that moves at a fast pace, right? We're on the quarter system. Everybody here is trying to do something, achieve something, publish something, whatever. And so when you step out of that and you say no to the busyness and you Sabbath, if enough of us do that, that can become disruptive, right? The other thing I think about is, you know, over the last couple of years, we've been prototyping an internship program. We've had some wonderful people go through what I would call like the beta testing of the internship program. Uh, people like Heath, who is playing the bass up here, uh, Michaela, David, Kay, some other folks, um, wonderful people who have gone through that. But now we're ready for what I would call the 2.0 version, which is, which is like a whole year-long sort of immersion in the life of discovery. And we have three people that have committed to do this in the upcoming year. And I, yeah, we can get excited about that. 
I love this because these are three people who are, are saying no to what I would call kind of the normal trajectory, which is to graduate, to go to grad school, or to jump right into the job market, and instead are taking a year to be here, to continue investing in the life of discovery, to serve, but also to be poured into, right? And, and that in and of itself is a cool story. I mean, at the heart of the program is here, I believe, we have the opportunity to invest in people, young people, who are going to go on and become the leaders of the church. Right, the future of the church is not me. I'm old. All right? The future of the church is actually on campus. And, and these, these folks who come here and have the opportunity to experience some of the things that we talk about right here at Discovery, to give back to that, to be invested in, will go on to be small group leaders, uh, elders, deacons, staff, church planters, entrepreneurs, launching new ministries, all kinds of cool stuff because of the time that they got to be here and be invested in, in this place. So I think about that too, right? Like the, the sort of disruptive nature of saying no to what everyone else is doing when they're graduating and saying yes to st- will be disruptive. Now, Ephesus also is the place where Paul left his protégés, Priscilla and Aquila, right? The great hero makers, the multipliers that we've spent quite a bit of time talking about. This is in Acts chapter 18. Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus meet and mentor this guy named Apollos, who then goes on to sort of replicate what they are doing in some other places. All of this to say, all of this to say, Paul has this deep affinity and connection with this church. And so to me, it's no surprise that Ephesians has a little bit of a different flavor to it than some of the other things that he wrote. Now, he may have understood, yes, my time is running out and they could use this letter in other places, but I believe that he, he knew what was about to happen to him and he also had a deep affection for this group of people. And so he gave his best Right? He gave his best in this letter to the Ephesians. So back to verse 1. He introduces himself. He reminds them of his credentials. But almost immediately, he starts affirming them. The very first thing Paul does is to speak affirmation and encouragement into this church. It's almost like he can't. He's like, I'm an apostle, blah, blah, blah. Let me tell you about you. Right? You, the holy ones, the saints, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Like my grandma, Paul's thinking here is this. This is not... Uh, 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 this is it for me. If I only have a little bit of time left, they need to hear this. They need to know this is who you really are. And man, do we need that kind of affirmation on a regular basis. Holy, set apart, the faithful ones. We may not feel that way very often. Right? We may not feel that way very often, but it doesn't make it any less true. And so I think this is very important for, for really anybody, of course, but especially for exiles, for people who are trying to navigate difficult faith circumstances. Man, our identities, our sense of who we really are, it gets bruised and battered and questioned and undermined almost everywhere we turn. God, I, I suck. I'm a failure. Falling behind, less than, only 11 likes. 
Whatever those things are, right? Some of those are silly, but some of those are, are serious. Whatever those things are, we are constantly getting messaging that undermines our identity, who we really are. Our confidence in holy, saint, faithful. And so Paul, throughout this letter, he just unrelentingly reminds the Ephesians, no, this is who you really are. This is what's true about you. And this is the story that you are in. And it's a good gift to them, and it is a good gift to us. Now, to the second verse, the kind of story that they are in, he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of those introductory things where if you're just kind of, you know, getting into the letter, you can read right past this, sort of blow right past it and not give it too much thought. But Paul is very, very intentional here in how he opens this letter. And he's very intentional in using the words grace and peace, just as we are intentional in using grace and peace each week as part of our closing benediction here at Discovery. It's not filler. We're not trying to be cute. It is this very succinct and rich way of reminding the Ephesians and us. These are not two random words. What Paul does here is very interesting. He takes the the normal Greco-Roman opening to a letter, Kyren or Kyrene, which literally means rejoice, but was often used at the beginning of letters as kind of like a, hello, friends, greetings. And instead, he uses the word charis, grace. So a little bit of a play on words there. Then he connects grace with peace, which if you know your history, you know is the big idea of the Roman Empire, right? The Pax Romana. The idea being that if, we, if you just sort of submit and acquiesce to Roman rule and oppression, you will experience peace. It will be great for you. Grace and peace. But then he connects this, right? He connects this grace and peace from God our Father and from Jesus our Lord, our King. Which is an interesting thing to throw in there. In other words, grace and peace do not come from Rome, but from the kingdom of God. From King Jesus. Grace and peace are not just two words to kind of sound flowery at the beginning of the letter. This is the story. And these words, these themes are going to be major areas of exploration for Paul in the next several chapters of the letter. This is the story. The story of what God is up to in the world and how he is doing it. What God is up to in the world and how He is doing it. Peace is what God is up to in the world, bringing unity, wholeness, rightness to his creation. The Old Testament word for this is shalom. You heard UN refer to this a few moments ago. Shalom, the the New Testament word, Irene, both of them speak to this idea, again, of wholeness, of everything in its right place, the way that God intended them to be. The way that we talk about this here is is right relationships. Shalom is right relationship between us and God, between each other, and then between us and the rest of creation. This is what God is doing. Restoring shalom through Jesus. He redeems these relationships through Jesus' death and resurrection. Peace. 
Now, Jesus' death and resurrection are the greatest and clearest demonstration of God's grace, his unmerited love and favor that he shows towards us. Grace is the means through which God achieves shalom. And that means a whole bunch of really cool stuff, but not the least of it is that this is what God is doing. This is God's work. We get to participate. We have a role to play, but this is God's work, and it is his gift to us. So Paul's going to spend the rest of the letter, and especially the next couple of chapters, exploring this truth and how it gets worked out in the life of a church. Grace and peace, and how does it impact our relationships, our mission, our community. This story of grace and peace, it ran in the opposite direction of Artemis. It ran in the opposite direction of Rome, and it is just as countercultural today. Grace and peace. In opposition to war and oppression. Injustice and equality. Frustration and apathy. Achievement and experiences. No, grace and peace. As we get started in this, in this journey through this book, I just want to begin with the question, what's your story? What, what story are you caught up in? What story is competing for your allegiances? Is it the story of grace and peace, God's amazing work, bringing shalom, restoring right relationship? Or is it some other story? Is it some other story? There's great freedom in being able to name what the story actually is. And the good news is that if you are living in some other story and you're like, I want that grace and peace story, all you need to do is change direction. The, the biblical word is repent. All that means is to turn. Has given us through his son Jesus. Time here before we, we sing a couple more songs, taking communion. So if you have your elements, pull those out. If you need some, there's two stations, one here and one there, and you can go ahead and grab that. We're going to take communion together as a way to remind us of who we are and the story that we are caught up in, right? This story of grace and peace. So take those out and then take that, that wafer representing Jesus' body broken for us. <clears throat> While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body, grace and peace. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of Christ, grace and peace. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this, this journey through Ephesians, thinking about what it looks like to follow you here in this place at this time. God, may we know, may we know who you are, 
how you see us, the story that you are telling and that we are caught up in. God, may we know that because of Jesus, his death and resurrection, we are loved, we are accepted, we are forgiven. We are part of your kingdom. And God, may we be people who live that story out in our lives, work, families, parenting, school, whatever it might be, God. May the story that we live and tell be one of grace and peace. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.